You're listening to GBA's audio education series with me, Tiffany Voorhees. And me, Ryan White. This series came about when we discovered some really great audio education content on the geoprofessional.org website, known as GBA. Since Ryan and I are members of GBA and both part of their podcast committee, we quickly realized that this content needed to be shared via podcast. The content we found was designed for one-on-one listening by field representatives and as material to spur discussion during formal training sessions. GBA uses dramatization and professional actors to set the scene for situations you will encounter in the field. But wait, there's more. Tackling topics like effective report writing or duty of care can be... A little boring? (sighs) Yes, but let's not get too punny. While GBA did a great job of telling engaging stories around these tough topics, Ryan and I add some personal lessons learned from each of our many years of experience in the industry, both as field reps and technical leaders. That makes us sound old. Well... Ready to listen to an episode about safety? As ready as I'll ever be. It's one of those things that's not very exciting, but extremely important. So I'm curious where our conversation will go once we listen to this. Yeah, exactly. I think it's a good episode, but I also don't have a whole lot to intro. We'll talk about it afterwards. So let's just play it. Sounds good. Gee, look at that, Charlie. What? That guy. He's not wearing a hard hat. So, what are you going to do about it? I don't know. Should I say something? What, to the guy? Yeah. Why? I don't see anything that's going to fall on his head. But I thought everyone has to wear hard hats. Not necessarily. And besides, we can't become the safety police. It's not our job. Well, now I'm getting confused. How so? Well, I'm a professional when I'm on site. Here I am, here you are, and we both represent Doug Downs PE. Anything we say, Doug says. Anything we do... Doug does. I'm with you. And as a professional, Doug is responsible for safeguarding public health, safety, and welfare, quote-unquote. True. Okay, so suppose we see someone using a power drill with a frayed cord. That's an OSHA violation. When did you get your law degree? I'm not trying to be a lawyer, Charlie. But OSHA says... Tyler, Tyler, Tyler. OSHA regulations are subject to interpretation and they're enforced by judges. Maybe you want to write it down. Maybe you don't. Maybe you want to say something to the guy or the guy's supervisor. Maybe you don't. Why, maybe? We find out next week. Doug's bringing in that lawyer to tell us exactly what we should be doing. But I can tell you one thing. What's that? We have a contract that says we're not responsible for construction site safety. So while we are responsible for public health, safety, and welfare, usually that's considered kind of a a general thing, a general obligation. It doesn't mean that we have to act as the safety cop for John Doe or James Smith. And if we do, then the second we start, we change our contract. And doing that can do a whole heck of a lot more harm than good. The same as when you were on site that time and said the trench looked okay? Exactly. Suppose you see something worse than a hard hat violation or a frayed cord, Tyler. Suppose you see a guy driving a D8 like it's a race car. It looks like maybe he's had something to drink or or maybe he's on drugs of one kind or another. What do you do? Ignore it? No! You you just can't ignore it. Look out! I'm going to find the super. What? Come with me. 
Curry! Hey, Charlie. You got a problem on the D8? What? Looks to me like he thinks he's driving a sports car. Thanks, Charlie. I'll take care of it. I'm making a note, Tyler. I'll report it. But that was just a friendly kind of thing to do. Jerry's a good guy. He can't be everywhere all the time, so I told him something he needed to know. I could have just as easily told the guy to stop the dozer and get down. And if you had, then you would have been directing or supervising the contractor's employees. And as soon as you do that, you're taking responsibility for site safety. And that changes the contract. Now you're getting it. Okay, Charlie. Answer me this. In this case, we're working with Jerry, and Jerry really cares. But supposing we have to work with some jerk who doesn't care, then what do we do? Well, I suppose the lawyer's going to tell us, but I suspect he'll say, write it down and then call in. Now, he may say, call in from the site, or he may say, get off the site and write it down and call in, or get off the site and call in then write it down. I'm not sure, but it's your safety that would be at issue. In other words, if I'm going to play safety cop, the only citizen on my beat better be me. And the people who work for you. If you think the site is unsafe for you or or you and your people, you don't want to be there. You let the project manager or someone else in charge know. And they call into the owner and tell the owner or the owner's rep what the situation is. If we say this site is not safe and our field representatives aren't going back until the contractor makes it safe, the owner's going to do something. And you know dang well the contractor's going to say it isn't true. Of course. But you know what? It usually doesn't even come to that. Contractors don't want delays. If you say you're getting ready to walk off the site, most contractors will fix the problem, whatever it is. Hey, if we can get by without making a lot of waves, so much the better. There's no benefit to stirring up trouble if you can get the job done without it. And besides, you carry a camera. You can always take a few pictures to document the problem so it won't be your word against the other guys. So how do I know the best thing to do? Well, I guess we could discuss that at a staff meeting. But it's possible it may vary for different people. It may depend on your comfort level. If you know that unsafe conditions exist or or people are doing things that are unsafe and the super isn't willing to do anything about it, then you let the super know you'll have to leave the site and then leave and call in right away. Hey, Charlie, how you doing? Hi, Joey, how you been? This is my associate, Tyler. Hey, Tyler, good to meet you. Same here. Hey, listen, I don't mean to be rude, but uh, I gotta run. I'll see you guys later, okay? Joey's a good guy. I haven't seen him in a while. So anyway, Charlie, what happens if I see a situation that I think is life-threatening? You tell the super or the owner's rep. In some cases, there'll be a safety officer on site. Okay, true or false. Most of the projects that have a safety officer, it's a big project with some top-flight, safety-conscious contractors, and I probably won't encounter many problems. True. The real safety problems tend to occur in the smaller jobs, with the contractors that don't have safety officers, and sometimes the only reason they're able to bid so low is because they don't do as good a job on safety as they might. Also true. So, suppose I see a life-threatening situation. Say a trench, I think, maybe getting ready to collapse, or a crane that's moving towards an overhead power line. What do I do? Do I just cut and run? Do I pretend like I don't see it? You cannot pretend. You have to get involved. But that could create a liability problem for the firm. First and foremost, you want to try to prevent a serious accident. You speak to the super. And if the super isn't there? Then you have to talk with whoever's in charge or involved. Maybe you say to the guys in the trenches, This trench doesn't look safe to me. I'd get out if I were you. Or maybe you tell the crane operator, Stop! Look up! What if the super is there but doesn't do anything? Again, this may mean personal intervention. Then what? 
Then you call into the office to let the person in charge know what's going on. They can call the owner or whoever they got to call. They can also send out a notice making it clear that this was done in furtherance of our duty of care to the public. That we took the action as educated citizens to prevent a tragedy. And that it does not mean we are taking on a supervisory role or that we're amending our contract. I have a tough time knowing what is or is not a life-threatening situation or a situation that may cause a real bad accident. That's something each firm can do on its own. We're going to be doing it next week. It's not easy stuff, Tyler. I know. I just want to make sure I do it right is all. What about OSHA rules and what we do? Now that's something else again. We need to know the general rules for health and safety about apparel and everything else. But we also need to know what the various OSHA rules are for the subs on site that we deal with because we could be liable if you if you go into a situation where OSHA rules are being violated to our detriment. We might even have to know what the subcontractor's rules are. Well, that makes things even hairier. Not necessarily. If you're in a situation where you think the sub might be violating OSHA rules or it's doing something unsafe and you feel nervous, you'd probably want to get away from that area of the site or the whole site and call in. So that could be a trench problem or the cowboy equipment operator or lack of tie-downs on upper stories and so forth. Exactly. So should I call OSHA? No. You don't call OSHA, Tyler. You call the office. If the office wants to call something into OSHA, it will. Remember... OSHA rules are subject to interpretation. Hey, imagine that we're working for an owner and we call in a complaint to OSHA. OSHA comes out, shuts down the job for a couple days. The contractors lose a pile of money because of the delays and their lawyer goes to war with OSHA. It's ruled that OSHA was wrong. Oh, where does that put us? What does the owner think? The owner isn't going to like us much. And what about the contractor? The contractor will be pretty upset. More than that, the contractor might sue us. I tell you, the biggest problem about this whole issue is lack of training. Now, Doug knows he's been remiss, and that's why he's starting off with a lawyer to tell us about some of the key issues. Then we can probably go on and evaluate some typical situations so we know what to do. We need to prevent any of us from getting hurt, and we need to do what we can so others don't get killed or seriously injured. But we're limited because we don't want to violate our own contract and we don't want to take on the role of judge, jury, and regulatory agency. Training is the key, Tyler. Training. And that doesn't help me much today. Today's over. And you have a lifetime of tomorrows. And as long as you keep in mind that your own safety always comes first, you'll have plenty of tomorrows to look forward to. Amen to that. Safety on site is not a simple issue at all. The key to dealing with it, as Charlie pointed out, is training. What are the typical situations field representatives encounter, and what should they do for each? The training is important. While nothing is more important than safety, preventing claims and lawsuits is pretty important, too. There are no easy answers, but there are answers, and you owe it to yourself to find out what they are. So, safety, what do you think about this episode, Ryan? I thought it was interesting. It's things that we think about all the time, but maybe not to that extent. And I think one of the interesting things for me was the refresher on the safety we as the company doing the construction observation or engineer of record is responsible for versus what the general contractor owner is responsible for. And it's not even a clear distinction for me. It's one of those things where I feel like I know it when I see it. I'm not sure how well I could describe it. Is that something that 
you got out of that? No, I really like how you said that because toward the end, they were making the point of what to do. And he kept saying, call the office, call the office, call your project manager. And I liked that. And I think that reasoning is because of exactly what you're saying. Sometimes you're in the moment and you're seeing it and you're like, oh, this is a fine line. Should I tell someone? Should I call? What should I do? And I liked that they kept enforcing, call your office and talk it through with the project manager because we've been through more of these experiences and we can help with next steps. And I thought one of the good points too was to document it. You don't have to say anything right away necessarily, but document it. He even said, take some photos. I mean, we all carry phones these days with cameras. I feel weird calling them phones even, but document it and then call and then figure out you know, what needs to happen if something needs to happen immediately. This is similar to one of our previous episodes where we talked about trench safety, where he just looked at the trench and said it looked okay and then something happened, where if you recognize an unsafe condition, you should definitely bring that up. But they made some differentiations in this episode about types of unsafe conditions, like the driver of the equipment being erratic versus, you know, an unsafe slope or unsafe trench, which to me seems a little bit different. I I found that really interesting too. And I thought back to that prior episode that you're talking about, but I've also thought about some, you know, horror stories in the industry that I've heard where people just kind of passively put something in a report and didn't make a big enough deal. And then the company got in trouble because it led to a safety issue. So I do think there's a very fine line, but you've always got to call and get the project manager involved. You're right. Document in the report, take the photos, do all that, but then talk to somebody else about next steps so that it doesn't just get passively put in a report that might not go out for several days. Yeah. And the other good differentiation they made was safety to you and your staff. So if it's something that's going to impact the safety of you and your staff, then you can speak up about it. And if they don't resolve it, leave the site. So that might be a good way to differentiate something that is unsafe that may not affect you versus something that's unsafe that would affect you, in which case I think they're saying that's especially when you speak up. I really liked that distinguishment there of if you feel unsafe at all, just stop and leave or go to your truck or whatever and call somebody, but definitely don't keep working. That's something that I have to talk to newer staff about all the time. So let me ask you this, because I was thinking through not just unsafe things I've seen, but unsafe things that I may have done. And there's one example where I was a pretty young engineer where I did something in hindsight was pretty unsafe, even though there was a discussion about safety around this project in advance. We were digging really deep test pits with a really big excavator, like 20-foot deep test pits. And the project manager made a point to say, don't stand right next to the side where it's likely to cave, you know, stand at the end where it's narrowest. And what I actually did was get in the excavator bucket. He swung me over the test pit and then I lowered my tape down so I could measure the depth of the test pit. And (laughs) in hindsight, I would never do that to this day. In fact, I use that as an example for staff don't do these kinds of things. And at the time, it didn't seem like a terrible idea, but I wanted to get an accurate measurement of the test pit. But the excavator actually did kind of 
tap the controls while I was in the bucket and kind of scared the crap out of me. Mm. So that's definitely something I've done. Have you done or seen anything personally, or do you have specific examples within your company of, of things that you guys had to respond to or react to? Like I had a staff member one day, he got a call from the contractor that he didn't do his review and they really needed somebody to do the review. So once I dug into it, I figured out, um, so this was one of our certified weld inspectors. So this was a CWI going out there to look at welds. And I guess what they had was one of those window washing style units that was going up in downtown Detroit to get to this super big high rise building. He got out there. He was uncomfortable, didn't know if it had been properly inspected, just didn't feel safe about it. So he left, which was not the right thing to do because we actually did have inspections on the the unit, on the lift. It was installed correctly and everything was good. So I couldn't fault him for you know, not putting himself in a situation where he felt unsafe, but it did really lead to that communication aspect. Call while you're on site, talk through these things. We had paperwork, we had inspection records, everything was okay. So at that point, if you're just uncomfortable and after you know all those facts, then I need to be able to get somebody else out there, right? Yeah, that's, I guess, different for for some of the examples I have, but a, a good example. The other thing that I could think of when I was thinking and listening through this episode was we had a case, and I think I talked about this when we were talking about trench safety, where there was an overly steepened excavation cut slope that the field staff identified, called me, and it actually turned into a pretty big deal where they had to shore up, embrace that cut until they got things um, constructed and backfilled to support that slope. So that was a very consistent example with what they described here, where someone saw something, they recognized it as unsafe, you know, not just for the contractor, but for them to even be out there in the area where they were asking our staff to be, called the project manager, called the owner and general contractor, and they resolved it. And, you know, no, no one got hurt, nothing bad happened. But it seems to be fairly uncommon these days with so many people thinking about safety. The other thing they said was, you know, the big projects with safety officers and large contractors are rarely the problem. And I agree, there probably are some problems, I'm sure, but probably fewer problems when you have an actual safety officer. That would mean people are pretty well trained and they're paying attention to that. And that the bigger problem is with smaller projects and smaller contractors, low bid, you know, maybe they compromise on safety in order to do things faster than, you know, putting in shoring in a trench takes time. And, you know, I can just send this dude down there in the trench and it'll probably be fine and save some money and time, but totally unsafe. So that that was a, a good point as well and not something I necessarily thought about explicitly. Yeah, I really liked that example too. I had not thought about that, but it's a good example with that window washing style lift that I was talking about. This was a really big site, a lot going on, full-time safety, and they had all of that reviewed, all of the paperwork. So yeah, that's definitely a good example. I will say too that I get all of the Michigan 
OSHA emails on fatalities. So every time there's a uh, worker-related fatality, an email goes out. And it really does seem like it's always small companies or factories. You hardly ever see the really big issues on those big sites that have safety on it full time. So that was a really good example and good point that they brought up. And what were they talking about? They they talked specifically about OSHA. And I think they said something about not trying to reinforce or not enforce OSHA requirements that they're subjective and left up to a judge to determine what were they saying about what to do in those types of situations just simply not comment on things that would be governed by OSHA yeah that was very interesting they seemed to very adamant that those are not necessarily laws and i think they kept saying they're all subject to they didn't say interpretation there was a different word that they used but to sum it up basically they were saying those are up to the interpretation of a judge if they really pursue some action against your project and it's not necessarily just osha's opinion or your opinion because those things can't be that black and white so that I found that very interesting that he kept enforcing that that's another reason why you really need to call the office and talk with this about more people because I might interpret it different than you do, which might be different than a judge. So we need to get as much experience involved in assessing whether there's really a violation, you know, as we can. But again, if you feel unsafe, don't do it. Definitely, you know, take take a step back or leave the site or go to your vehicle for these calls. But I think that was, again, talk through it with somebody because we've all probably been through more of those situations of having to interpret the rules. Yeah, and for me, I think the most consistent OSHA-related recommendation is related to slopes and excavation slope steepness and things like that and that's an area where i think if we recognized it as unsafe you know maybe fine grain soils and they have a vertical cut that's 10 feet high that's obviously unsafe i think we would just say that's unsafe Um, we probably wouldn't quote that as being osha ultimately the governance for you know allowances for slope configurations come from osha we probably wouldn't call that out as an OSHA violation, right? But we might recognize that as an unsafe slope. So I was I was a little bit unsure how they were differentiating that or what they were saying should or shouldn't be done as it relates to OSHA. I know OSHA covers so many different things. And in my world, it's mostly related, related to excavation safety. So maybe the other things are less clear. But to me, that one seems pretty clear. I mean, if you have an overly obviously overly steep slope seems like something you could bring to people's attention. Yeah, that's interesting. That didn't stand out to me because I do feel like um, my work, we talk about OSHA stuff all the time. So we might be, you know, doing a coatings review on the underside of a bridge that's over water. We have conversations all the time. It might just be two inches of water, but technically that falls into the OSHA rules for working over a waterway. So there's tons of restrictions and you have to wear life vests and all that. Then we've got other things where we might climb a water tower. You know, there are OSHA rules for tying off and safety and all that. So 
yeah, I feel like we are talking about specific OSHA rules all the time in my world. So yeah, I guess it could be very different on depending on what you're doing for your work. But would you ever bring any of those up to the contractor? So if you were out there and you knew the regulations for working over water required you to wear a life vest, even if it was a few inches of water, and the contractor wasn't wearing life vests, would you normally bring that up to them? Yes, and I have. I was doing some coatings reviews back when I was working in the field a lot. I remember there was a small suburb of Detroit and I was doing reviews on like five or six of their bridges. And one particular one, the water was pretty deep and the only way they could get scaffolding for us was to actually put the scaffolding on floating styrofoam. So they have these like three foot thick sections of styrofoam that they put in there. They're floating, but yet they kind of secure them down and they build the scaffolding on that. Well, to get over to those, we are technically going over the water when we step over to them and then go up the ladder. So we talked about that with them, said, what are you requiring? I mean, they're blasting off lead-based paint. So we had all these protocols, right? I'm wearing full suits, respirator, all that, and a life vest on top of it. So I just talked to them ahead of time. Hey, if I'm going in there, here's what I think I need per the requirements. What are you going to be doing? We talked through it. They were kind of on the fence, but they did end up um, making sure that their staff who were doing the blasting and coatings also had life vests. I don't think they wore them the whole time, but they had them when they were entering and exiting. Do you have any examples of where there was an accident related to an unsafe condition where maybe there was like, I don't want to say post-mortem that (laughs) that implies death, but um, just an accident where one of these things wasn't done and it was recognized after the fact? I, I, I think I'm fairly lucky in that I, as far as I know on projects I've worked on, there haven't been terrible accidents related to site safety. I'm just kind of curious in our fields how often this happens because like you, I've heard about these things um, happening but haven't had them happen on projects I've worked on, thank goodness. Have you heard of any close calls or anything's happening on any of your projects? Yeah, I, I can't go into details on it, but several years ago, I was unfortunately on a project where a major bridge was being uh, repainted and a bunch of work was going on. And one of the painters um, fell to the water and died. It was terrible. There was a lot involved in a full ocean investigation that we had all of our emails audited and everything. So can't talk about it too much. But yes, it was terrible. And they were installing the scaffolding so that they could move to the next section. So uh, if you think about it, hanging underneath the bridge, if you've got suspended scaffolding platforms, you have to keep working near that leading edge where you could fall in order to be able to put the cables out for the next section. And that's what was going on without proper tie off. So yes, I am super sensitive about any of our staff working at heights. I was before that, but definitely more so after that. And in that case, that wasn't something you were responsible for or your company was responsible for or had seen. It was unrelated to the work you were doing, except in that you guys had to access the scaffolding 
to see to do your inspections or was the scaffolding part of the inspections that you guys were doing? This is one of those fine lines because we had pointed out that we were concerned with what was going on. So we had commented on the safety issue that we saw. So it's one of those very fine lines that they talk about. And part of why I can't get into it, because we had made a comment that it probably wasn't safe what they're doing. I mean, to me, it seems better to say something is unsafe than to not say anything and have it be unsafe, right? Because if to me, it seems like if there's an unsafe condition and you don't say anything, you're going to be responsible. Even if you can be responsible for saying something, that's that's so difficult for, I think, even at a higher level for people to differentiate um, other than maybe from experience when, when and when not to say something when there's an unsafe condition. And I know we differentiated in this episode by what would impact you or your staff's safe, safety versus what's impacting them. But that's that's kind of hard when they were talking about sort of the oath of an engineer to protect, you know, public safety. It's it's not straightforward. I, I you think safety would be, but it is when it comes to the liability related to safety, it's a bit confusing at times. Yeah, it's not straightforward at all. One thing that I used to run into a lot and we still run into is, you know, confined spaces. So if you're going into a confined space, it can be permit required or not permit required. And there are different levels of safety required for that. But even just classifying whether it is a confined space or not can be open to interpretation. So let's say I am going to be reviewing the liner of an electric coat tank. This is something I used to do quite a bit. So automotive facility has these giant troughs that they coat the primer for their vehicles in. Well, we make sure those are lined properly so the paint grounds to the car and not to the tank itself. So if I'm going to be going in this giant trough that could be as much as 15 foot deep, probably about you know, 12, 13 foot wide and close to 200 feet long, that's open air on top. You would think it has good enough airflow. So that checks one of the boxes, right? But then your entrance, is there really an entrance if you're walking down a slope that's somewhat slippery? I mean, this is kind of like a really long trench box, right? So at what point do you classify that as a confined space or not? And I'll go into one facility and their paint department will say, this is not a confined space now that we've got all the stuff out, as long as you put two ladders, one at each end. Go into another plant and they're like, no, this is absolutely a confined space. We're going to hire a rescue team. They'll be on standby. I'll literally have to hook my harness up to a retractable every single time I go in or out so that they can make sure we don't fall while we're going down the ladder and all that. So it's definitely open to interpretation at different places. And I think that can be really tough for staff. When I was first going in the field and doing this type of work, I used to always take you know an oxygen monitor and all these different things. Some places would monitor it and some wouldn't. So I just always had to protect myself and be careful and make sure they had airflow going in. I would often, um, I learned to tie off the monitor to a string, drop it down in, get readings at a few different spots, make sure that it really wasn't trapped air. 
So yeah, it's it can be very tough and way more gray than you would expect. Yeah, and I think there are even large companies that have potentially confined spaces even hire people to define whether those are confined spaces because I believe you have to have specific labeling even at openings to confined spaces that kind of reiterate some of these requirements, don't you? Well, you do, but think about the situation like the electric coat tank. When it is full of the paint and it's got this giant bath that you could fall into and drown, 100% confined space. But if you're working on it and now all the valves are open and you can stand in the tank and look right out through some of these giant valves at people standing outside, tops wide open, you got a ladder at each end, it's reclassified as that point at that point. And that's what's tough because you've classified it for its main service use, but now you're doing something different and it has to be reclassified on the spot. Yeah, confusing. Mm-hmm. So in the end, for our wrap-up, I liked this episode, but I do think it was one that, you know, didn't necessarily answer questions. It just gave you the big takeaway of ask somebody. If you ever see something that stands out, call the office, ask somebody. And if you feel like you're in an unsafe situation, get away from it, then make the call, right? Yeah, I, I took from this that document it, definitely write it down, take pictures, don't leave the site until you talk to someone else, the project manager most likely, and figure out what your next steps are. I like it. All right. Catch you next time. All right. Thanks, Tiffany. Bye, Ryan. Thank you for joining us for this episode of GBA's audio education series. We hope you found this conversation valuable and can use what you learned here. Links to the original audio and all the resources we mentioned are included in the show notes. But before you go, don't forget to give us a review, hopefully five stars, and subscribe to the GBA podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes.